Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Well, yeah, I get the privilege of, uh, of teaching all this week. So I'm going to be with you Monday to Thursday this week. And uh, we're going to be reading, um, we're going to be looking at Leviticus 1 to 8 on our Monday to Thursday readings. Um, and so, yeah, we're just really excited to uh, just to jump into this really, really challenging, but wonderful. And uh, hopefully we'll see very rich book, uh, even for us as New Testament Christians. So uh, just before we begin, I just want to remind us of all of our uh, of our memory verse for the month, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 to 20, which reads, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And I'm just wondering, would there be someone on the call who would be willing to unmute themselves and just open us up in prayer? Oh, Father God, we are so thankful to gather once again as a family. Lord, we invite you into our time together. I pray for a fresh anointing over Pastor Terry as he speaks your word this morning and teaches us. Lord God, open our heart that we may receive from you, that we may receive truth to help us to walk in the light today, Lord, and to represent you wherever we go that we may be empowered with your Holy Spirit by the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. Well, um, you know, if you haven't read uh, the first two chapters yet of Leviticus, um, that'll be okay. Although I really encourage you to have Leviticus out with you uh, as we are reading, as we do our discussion today. And just follow along as I uh, discuss it. Uh, but I would really just encourage you just to come come before, if you can, to read ahead and just read the, the next two chapters each day, just because uh, there's just so much going to be going on in uh, our text. But I think we need to begin um, with a study of Leviticus by asking the question, why, why Leviticus? Why Leviticus? I'm sure many of you uh, have asked that question at some point. Um, whether it's in your daily devotions or just even in Heartstrong as you've come across this book. Well, I want to begin by reading uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Many of you will know this verse, so it will be familiar. But it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And so, you know, we need to, as we approach the book of Leviticus, remember that it's not just some scriptures that are inspired and profitable, but it's all scriptures, including the book of Leviticus. Um, but, but, you know, more significantly to us, I think uh, Leviticus is not going to make very much sense if we just read it 
on our own. So if we just want to read it devotionally, uh, the way we would read the book of Romans, for example, um, and we're looking just to, just to for, the, for the text to edify us and encourage us. And we're not going to read it without any other context or understanding. It's not going to make sense. It's one of the reasons why we should encourage uh, new believers, new Christians, uh, to maybe start their Bible reading in the New Testament, because it can really discourage someone who is reading Genesis and then Exodus and is just really enthralled in this story. And then uh, Leviticus can offer them a road bump if they don't have a proper context and understanding of what it is that they're reading. And so when we read Leviticus, um, we need to read it as a text, which is foreshadowing and pointing towards Christ. And if we read it in that manner, if you are reading through the sacrifices and looking at the blood and the, the gruesome details of how they are to sacrifice, but we are always foreshadowing and pointing towards Christ, it's actually going to be very rich. And we need to remember that, you know, some of this is going to be very foreign, uh, culturally speaking, um, but Christ did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And just keep that in your mind as we go through the entire book of Leviticus, that Christ did not come to get rid of this law, but he came to be its fulfillment. And so you'll not, and then I think in, in addition, you'll also not be able to understand fully the book of Hebrews in the New Testament uh, without having a good understanding of Leviticus. So us going through Leviticus together is actually going to very much enrich your reading of Hebrews in future readings. And you're going to notice how a lot of times we're going to reference uh, the book of Hebrews uh, in, our, in our study. And then finally, the book of Leviticus really goes into great detail to demonstrate the holiness of God, uh, perhaps more so than any other uh, book in the, in the Old Testament. So Leviticus is a continuation of Exodus. I, I don't want you to think of it as a new book but as a continuation, almost like a part B of uh, Exodus. And the title itself, Leviticus, is a Latin rendering of a Greek word, meaning pertaining to the Levitical priests. Its name stems from the fact that in this section of the Pentateuch, the author fo is focusing on the requirements of the covenant that relate to the priests, to the Levites, um, and most likely this has some association with the incident of the golden calf that we looked at last week on Monday that Aaron was involved with. Uh, but these are very specific instructions that are relating to the priests, the Levites, uh, hence the word Leviticus, pertaining to the Levitical priests. Uh, but when we, uh, as Glenda finished this off last week, uh, Exodus 40, it concludes the, with the completion of the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle has now been completed on the first day of the second month of the second year. And Numbers, the book of Numbers, which follows Leviticus, begins on the first day of the second month of the second year. Um, and so uh, we see that Leviticus then deals with the events which transpire in the intervening months. So there's one month in between the book of Exodus and the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. So one month transpires uh, between these events. And during this month, uh, you know, uh, God gives Moses the contents of Leviticus while he is in the tent of meeting. And so, like I've, like, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the central theme of this book is holiness. And if you're taking notes, uh, write this down at the very top, almost as like a header: how a holy God requires a holy people. And just continuously, as we as we go through the book, come back to that point: a holy God requires a holy people. 
So it's really going to highlight the holiness of God. But to be a holy people requires uh, forgiveness and cleansing of sin. We can't forget that. That to be a holy people is not about what we can do, what we can perform, what we can accomplish. But to come be a holy people requires us to be forgiven and to be cleansed of our sin. And so this is a book that not just only highlights the holiness of God and the holy the demands of holiness on God's people, but it highlights the forgiveness of God's people. You know, the book really is both revelatory and regulatory, meaning it reveals God to us, but it also regulates the relationship they had with God. And so the book was intended to show Israel how to fulfill its covenant responsibility to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the book begins in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, with God summoning Moses to hear his word spoken from the tent of meeting. You know, repeatedly we're told that the Lord spoke to Moses. And we, we know Moses was the mediator of God's word to his people. And unlike any other person in the Old Testament, the Lord met with Moses. You know, Numbers 12, 8 says that with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And the book begins as an echo of the revelation of God to Moses at Sinai in Exodus 24, verse 16, when it says that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud, it covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So we begin to see a bit of a, I would, I would say a, a progress uh, of the people of Israel because in Exodus, the people had distanced themselves from God's glory. But in Leviticus, we're discovering that the people gladly saw the glory of the Lord after the priests prepared the way by instituting the first sacrifices in the tabernacle. So you're going to begin to see now how this, the law God had given the people is beginning to do what it was intended to do, to bring the people closer to him, to bring order to the people of Israel, to guide them, and to ultimately reveal God to them. Uh, so if the book of Leviticus, you know, if it teaches us anything, it's that the Lord God demands that only qualified people can commune with him. God is an awesome holy God who is unlike any other. And so Moses' role was the chief mediator or safeguard between the Lord and the people of Moses, who was the mouth of God. And initially, the Lord made himself available to Moses at any time from the tent of meeting, any time Moses could go and, and commune with the Lord. But once the tabernacle structure was built... Moses's access to God would then become limited, which is interesting to which is interesting to note. And so that really brings us to our first foreshadowing of Christ in the book of Leviticus. How the Lord, the Lord called Moses up to speak to him as the mediator. And we know that Jesus is the better Moses, who perfectly delivers the word of God to God's people, who perfectly mediates the glory of God. And although Moses was a loyal servant, Christ was a faithful son. He was the complete and perfect mediator. And so while Moses' face radiated the glory of God, it was temporary. But when we gaze upon Christ, we, those who gaze upon his face will experience the permanent transforming power of God's glory. 
And all, all those of us in Christ, which is you, we no longer stand outside the tent of meeting like the Israelites did, but we are brought close to God through the sacrificial death of Jesus. So the Lord has now provided the tabernacle, and that's really important. Um, you know, Glenda did a wonderful job last week of really highlighting the details of the tabernacle. But now that the tabernacle was established, there was now need for proper features of worship. And so Leviticus spells out five sacrifices that God has ordained for worship, um, including atonement for sin. Uh, so Leviticus chapter one, the goal for this week is really to uh, for us to grasp together these five sacrifices that are outlined in Leviticus 1 to 7. So Monday to Thursday, our readings will take us to Leviticus chapter 8, but we're really going to deal with the contents of 1 to 7. Um, and so, you know, the Lord uh, in Leviticus chapter 8, he'll then, once the sacrifices are established, he'll then uh, instruct Moses to carry out the ordination of the priests who were to, to function at the altar where the sacrifices were carried out. And so when you get to Leviticus uh, chapter eight, maybe we might try to come back to that at another point in the month. Um, but that is the, the or, or, ordination of uh, Aaron and the priests. And then in Leviticus nine, we then see after the, the sacrifices have been laid out for the people, uh, we then see the first sacrifices be performed by the newly consecrated priests which who are Aaron and his son. So that's sort of how the first, you know, nine chapters of Leviticus gets laid out. Um, but what uh, the first, you know, seven chapters is really doing and is laying out the proper place, the proper people and the proper offerings that are to take place in the tabernacle. And by doing this, God will show his approval of the people's worship, that the glory of the Lord will appear to all the people. And that's significant. So Leviticus 1 to 7, which is the main focus of our study this week, uh, features the five sacrifices that God calls for in uh, for, the, for the Israelites. And they can be classified according to their motivation and necessity. So the first three sacrifices are voluntary. They're the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the peace offerings. And then the final two sacrifices mentioned are, are sacrifices that were required. That's the sin offering and the guilt offering. And the first offering that's dealt with here in Leviticus chapter one is uh, the whole burnt offering. And as a voluntary offering, its presentation to the Lord uh, by worshipers reflects their willing spirit to acknowledge the lordship of their God. And so since the entire offering would be burnt up on the altar, except the skin, which, was, uh, belong which belonged to the priests, uh, the person making the offering could not benefit in any way from the sacrifice they were making because it was entirely burnt up. And so by doing this, by burning up an entire sacrifice, it was an expression to God of complete surrender, of total devotion, that there was no holding back in their worship. There was no parceling out favors. It was a costly sacrifice and it was a holistic sacrifice. The entire thing was burnt up. And, you know, when we worship God, our worship begins with a devoted heart towards God. You know, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 instructs us to offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. And I want you to notice here how the offering 
that is, is given to the Lord, the whole burnt offering, when it is offered, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And that's going to be a very repeated theme in Leviticus in these sacrifices, how when offered, it, it, it's, it causes this very pleasing aroma. Not that God just likes the smell of, you know, um, <laughs> sacrificed animals, but the pleasing aroma is a, a symbol of its acceptance, how God has accepted their gifts, their worship. You know, as Christians, when we worship, you know, we, we must part with our possessions and we must disregard personal ambitions and leave everything to follow Jesus. You know, the call of Jesus is a call of denial, self-denial, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow me. And the first call of Jesus was a call of, uh, or sorry, the first call was in Leviticus was a call of complete submission to the Lord who accepted nothing less from those who loved him. Let me say that again. It was a call of complete submission to the Lord who accepted nothing less from those who loved him. You know, recall what Peter, the apostle Peter said to Jesus. You know, see, we have left everything and followed you. We have left everything and followed you. So in, in Leviticus, the Lord required the Israelite worshiper uh, this and this is important if you're another if you're someone who's taking notes, because it's going to really um, set the the theme or the the pattern to follow, to bring a proper gift to the proper place, and to worship him by the proper presentation of the offering. So, as we follow the uh, the sacrifices, remember proper gift. They need, there needs to be a proper gift, a proper people. The people matter, and then a proper presentation of the offering. And we'll later discover how the demands that were being made of the ancient Hebrews were perfectly performed on our behalf through Jesus Christ. So as we look at the proper gifts in the proper place and the proper presentation, you know, Jesus Christ himself was the proper gift and the proper place and fulfilled by proper presentation of sacrifice for the, given, for the forgiveness of sins. By his perfect obedience, him being Christ, we as Christians can worship with the perfect assurance that because of him, our worship is accepted by the Father. Remember the words of the Father who looked upon his son and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the, the Israelites will make offerings and sacrifices to the Lord, and it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the father looks upon his son and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So let's look first at the first feature of sacrifice, the proper gift. So we have the proper gift, the proper place, and the proper presentation. So the variety of animals offered to sacrifice conveyed that God always required of his people a sacrifice of value. So the sacrifice they were offering had to cost you something. But the economic value varied based on one's ability to give. So the poor Israelite, and that's why you see in Leviticus chapter 1, if you're following along, that there's a, a variety of different offerings for the burnt offering. So a poor Israelite could give an inexpensive bird. Uh, but the wealthy person, the person who had more money, could give a more costly gift. But regardless of your economic status, a person could not bring to the Lord a cheap gift. 
They could not worship cheaply. You know, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, David said this. He said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. And I think that should be the said that should be the same thing that we say of our worship to the Lord. That every one of us should give and give sacrificially to the Lord's work if there is to be true worship. And I want to ask you, what has the Lord been calling you to give sacrificially to him? You know, what offering to the Lord? And don't just think financially. It doesn't have to be just financially, but just generally. What gift has the Lord been calling you to bring to him that is costly? It's going to cost you something. You know, if the worshiper were to offer livestock in Leviticus chapter 1, we see it was instructed to be a male without blemish. Why a male? Well, it's probably more symbolic than of actual value because the female animal was more valuable of the uh, because the, you know of her reproductive abilities, but the male symbolically represented the whole herd as the chief animal. And so by calling for a male animal, God was demanding the best of a worshiper's herd as a token of the worshiper's all, his all in all. And, you know, the same thing, uh, I want you to make note, the poor Israelites, inexpensive bird. So we have a very costly animal that somebody with more money could offer. But the inexpensive bird offered by a very poor Israelite received the same approval as the costlier bull. Isn't it amazing that God provided the system of offerings that enabled all economic classes to present a gift that the Lord welcomes? You know, when I think about Jesus in the New Testament, you know, Jesus, he, he, he recognized that we would always have the poor among us. And he was far more concerned, I think, with those who had money, that by having money, that they did not fall into idolatry. And as a result of their love of money, uh, mistreat and neglect the poor. So the Lord, you know, sometimes we try to impose our own uh, view of economics onto the gospel. You know, this is what the gospel says about economics. We should have this system. No, um, Jesus was not trying to take money away from the rich. He was concerned about the, their heart and ensuring that by having more than others, that they were not mistreating or neglecting the poor in the process. So, you know, the takeaway is we give what we have. God does not demand that we give what we do not have. And, you know, Jesus, remember, he commended a widow who had only two coins in her possession, but he commended her worship because she gave all that she had. You know, she didn't give out of her, her abundance and just give pennies out of her abundance, but she gave, even though it was pennies she gave, it was all she had. And the Lord looked and, and upon her, her worship and, and it pleased him and he accepted that worship. So, let me ask you a challenging question. <laughs> Can the church succeed without my gift? Yes. But a better question is, can I succeed in Christian living without giving? And I'll let you be the answer to that. Can the church succeed without my gift? Yes, it can. But can I succeed in Christian living without giving? So that covers the, the proper gift. So let's look at the proper place when it comes to sacrifice. So the proper gift, if it were to be accepted, had to be presented at the proper place. And that was 
at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the tabernacle was the geographic and structural and theological centerpiece of Israel's life. And it was on the altar where all food and drink offerings were presented. Um, so they're put on the altar in the courtyard and it was a little distance away from the tent where the Lord symbolically resided. You know, these sacrifices, it's important to note, and I think that most of us would understand this, but maybe somebody, uh, er, you know, more earlier on in your faith might need to understand this, that these sacrifices were not presented to God to feed him. So that's not what they were. Other nations, you know, other ancient cultures, when they would make a sacrifice, they saw it as a way of feeding the gods, you know, uh, appeasing them by feeding their hunger, their stomachs. This is not uh, what's happening here. And I think later in the week, well, I'll make more mention of that. But when you would come into the uh, the tabernacle and you would come in, you know, through the uh, into the courtyard where the altar, the sight of the altar, it would produce in your heart conflicting emotions. And it was designed to do that. You were to, it was to signal in you a sorrow by virtue of its identity as a place of death. So you were to instantly feel a sense of sorrow, but you were also to, um, it was also a place of great joy for the sacrifices the people offered characterized, you know, festivals of celebration. And so it was this perpetual reminder of human sin and also a provision of divine grace that resulted in the joy of receiving forgiveness. You know, what, what is that altar to us as Christians? You know, in one sense, it can be the cross. You know, it's a, the cross is a testimony to the sorrow produced by our sin and the undeserved suffering Jesus endured for our crimes. Yet the cross is also a sign of the joyful victory that Jesus achieved on our behalf by paying for our sins, liberating us from guilt and death. But the altar is not only the cross, but the altar truly is the sacrificed body of Christ, who is our spiritual altar. You know, we don't have a material, physical altar as, as Christians. Hebrews 13 verse 10 says this, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. This altar the body of our Lord Jesus Christ surpassed the tabernacle's altar because Jesus secured eternal spiritual benefits. And so that, so the altar was the proper place where the gift, the proper gift was to be offered. But then finally, if the gifts were to be accepted, it had to be offered in the proper way. So it had, to, it required a proper presentation of the offering of the sacrifice. So we have a proper gift, proper place, now finally the proper presentation. And any departure from the prescribed course of action that the Lord is laying out here in Leviticus would result in the rejection of the offering. You know, the Lord required strict observance to show the importance of approaching him for the purpose of worship and for the forgiveness of sin. You know, I, I think a few weeks ago, I saw a CTV article how when the the, some of the royals were visiting Canada a few weeks ago. Forget which ones, but the article kind of uh, made me stick up my nose a little bit because it said, if you encounter the royals, here's how you're supposed to act in their presence or something of that. It was a, a guide to how to act in the presence of royals. And I kind of, you know, stuck up my nose a little bit because I was like, you know, they're just people. They're like, they're, they're no different. You know, <laughs> it's like just because of their bloodline goes back. Like, they're, but they're still people. 
So it's like, I, I just, I kind of was a little bit like, what do you mean I have to act? I'm required to act a certain way in their presence. But now think about the Lord, <laughs> you know, not a human, but fully God, you know, like the holiness of God, how when we come into his presence, you know, Leviticus is outlining how <laughs> there's an importance of approaching him the right way and in the right manner. And that's what this portion deals with by fulfilling the proper presentation of the animal offering. What the Israelite was doing was acknowledging the ruling presence of God in their life. You know, both the lay person, the one offering the gift and the officiating priest, the one, you know, receiving and performing the sacrifice, they each played vital roles with their, their roles um, alternating. There was like the symbiotic harmony between the worshiper, the, the, the one making the sacrifice and the officiating priest. Um, but by carrying out this procedure that Leviticus 1 will outline, uh, the Israelite was identified, and this is important, you, the, the worshiper was identifying closely with the innocent victim. So there was an association when, when you looked upon the animal being slaughtered, that there was supposed to be like, that's supposed to be me. Like that's supposed to represent, you know, me. So the blood of the animal would have splashed the worshiper. You know, just think the sounds of the animal being sacrificed, the smells, the blood, it would mark their memory. And, you know, it was supposed to remind them, point to that the, your transgressions was costing the life of another creature. So that creature was dying because of your transgressions, because of your sin. And, you know, how much more disturbing is it for the Christian then to contemplate the ordeal of our Savior? whose blood streamed down the cross. And I think it's one of the reasons why on Good Friday, we really sometimes go into extra detail to really recount the gruesome details of the crucifixion. You know, similarly, that's what the worshiper in, in uh, the Israelite worshiper was to do when they were to make a sacrifice, to really behold the gruesomeness of this whole ordeal, to remind them how their transgressions was costing the life of another. And so the priests would catch the blood and pour it at the base of the altar. And this action, it symbolized that the animal's life had been forfeited by the worshiper as a costly gift presented to the Lord. The blood was devoted to God. The careful treatment of the blood that is outlined here showed that the life of the victim, whether large or small, whether it was a bull or a dove, was precious since life and death were a divine privilege. And so our passage here in verse four of chapter one, it makes clear the purpose of this ritual, that the animal offering was to make atonement. You know, the act of reconciliation with an aggrieved individual. And let us not forget the, the, the one who's offended, the offending party was not the Lord, but the worshiper. It's the worshiper who had angered the Lord by his sin against the Lord. And the sacrificed, sacrifice atoned for that sin and pacified God's anger. You know, the blood of the animal did not merit forgiveness. It was God by his unmerited grace that bestowed forgiveness in response to the repentance and obedience of the offender. But the shedding of blood was a symbolic gesture of obedience. There was not any actual transference of value in the shedding of blood of the animal that warranted God's forgiveness. 
You know, Hebrews chapter 10, verse four says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The basis on which sin is taken away is not the blood of animals, but it is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose perfect sacrifice alone is adequate to win the forgiveness of sins. And that's why it says in Hebrews 9.22, and I'm just about to close here for those who do need to go. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And I don't know why, but for some reason, people want to resist a gospel that involves a gruesome cross. But the gospel without the blood-stained cross is not good news at all. For without the death of a slain lamb of God, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So as a result of the sacrifice, the proper gift in the proper place with the proper presentation, it resulted in a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the same response will be described for the grain, peace, and drink offerings. And that the priests were to accept the sacrifice was the first sign that a person could be accepted by the Lord. You know, a pleasing aroma. We're to, I want you to recall, because it's fresh in our memories, Noah leaving the ark after the flood. And he presented to the Lord a burnt offering. And as a result of that offering, it resulted in the Lord smelling the pleasing aroma. You know, this is just more a figure of speech and not the Lord actually smelling. Uh, it's like the incense that was offered. It was to symbolize, you know, prayers being made on behalf of the people, the incense rising. Um, similarly, the, the pleasing aroma was that their gift had been accepted. And so in closing, let me leave you with this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Unlike the animal slain on behalf of the worshiper in Leviticus, the sacrifice that was offered by our Lord Jesus Christ, it was wholly voluntary. He gave himself up for us. And the Father fully accepted the atonement of Jesus and it proven to us by the resurrection. The fact that Jesus did not stay dead but was raised by the Father meant that the Father had fully accepted this, this gift, this offering. And then finally, just as a, as a more of a, another side note, when, you know, when the Philippians uh, church sent money to support Paul uh, in the New Testament, uh, Paul saw their sacrifice with the same language used of the Lord's death. He described their sacrificial gift as a fragrant offering, that it was a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You know, there is no legitimate claim to commitment if there is no costly consecration to God. And that really highlights the, uh, the what Leviticus 1 represents and what really the entire book of Leviticus represents. So, so that concludes... Um, just Leviticus 1. So tomorrow we're going to pick up and we're going to carry on. So keep reading and I'm just going to trail a little bit, but eventually by the end of the week, we'll have caught up fully. Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the Heartstrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become heartstrong disciples together.